Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson, Tour de France, Stage 12 from Chauvigny to Saron, and Terreno Adriatico, Stage 4. Two magnificent races with some great tactics, some winners that we really wanted to see winning in both races as well. Um, yeah, just some great racing today, particularly after a bit of a boring stage in the tour yesterday and all the drama that ensued afterwards. But yeah, if you guys have been enjoying and girls have been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate your support just by uh, leaving a review or a rating in one of the podcast players, particularly the Apple podcast. That one seems to help a lot. And you guys have been going crazy with that. There's over 100 reviews already, which is insane. The pod is going insane. We've already had a network try to pick us up. We've pretty much been like, no, this is a Lantern Rouge cycling podcast with Benji Nyson. We do what we want. Anyway, that's enough of an intro. On to stage 12 of the tour. Benji, the profile of this was kind of a rolly breakaway stage. Well, I mean, we were unsure yesterday whether it was going to be a breakaway or GC, you know, the GC teams really taking over. Why was that and what was in the profile that made it difficult to assess what was going to happen? Well, when it comes to the profile, we had an intermediate sprint early on in the race after about 50 kilometers, and that influenced my opinion on how the race would be ridden because we've got hills near the finish line that are more important for, for example, an Alaphilippe to bridge over, and those climbs were at 40k to go and 26k to go, and those climbs are not the easiest. We've got with 40k to go the Côte de la Croix du Pré, which is 6 kilometers at 5.1%, and then after that, the Sucomet just after descent. 26 kilometers from the line at 3.7 kilometers, but a bit steeper at 7.4%. Now, after that second climb, there's a bit of a plateau section, but it's up and down, up and down to the finish line, to be honest. And the finish is basically an upsloping finish of about 3.2 kilometers at 3.1%. So it sure as hell wasn't easy after the Sukome. Nonetheless, my opinion towards the stage was the fact that I expected the Koenig Quickstep to work fully for, well, the person they have in charge for the green jersey, Sam Bennett. And therefore, I did not think they could send too many people to help out Philippe. And I think that kind of played out, but we'll see that in a second during the stage summary. What is your opinion on the stage beforehand? Yeah, it's one of, it's one of those sneaky profiles where you look at it and you see, oh, two Cat 4s, a Cat 3, and a really short Category 2, 3.7K is at 7.5% with the bonus seconds on top, uh, the last major climb. And you think, that's not that hard. And then apparently it was like for over 4,000 meters climbing or over like a lot of climbing today. Uh, that might be completely wrong, but I saw some statistics somewhere that there was actually loads of climbing. And when you look at the profile really closely, it's constantly up and down. Bora certainly did take it upon themselves to ride on the front for a lot of today. There was an early breakaway that went with uh, Imanol Erreti, Luis Leon Sanchez, Nils Pollitt for ISU, Max Volscheid for NTT. Eventually, Casper uh, Askren and uh, Burgadur bridged over to those guys. So pretty much 
four pure rulers or you know riders that are like over 80 kilos and then uh Borgoda for tde is like 1.65 meters tall so an interesting group that i yeah didn't really have much hope to be honest on this sort of profile and they weren't let off the leash by bora Hans grower or the koenig quick step because yeah the intermediate sprint was with 50.5 k's to go it's always the same Every single intermediate sprint, you see Marku coming to the front, Bennett in the wheel, and sometimes you have Trenton in the mix, but this time around, I think he came fifth or something. I'm not exactly sure where Trenton ended on this one, but Sagan kind of gives up the moment that Bennett goes past Marku and doesn't even put some effort into passing Marku. So I'm not really sure what's on Sagan's mind there to take those extra points. Maybe he wants to save some energy for the rest of the stage because he wanted to survive it. But yeah, I feel like there's a a bit of an issue there that he doesn't even try to uh, go past Merku every time. Yeah, it's. I think he lost another two points to Bennett in the green jersey comp- competition. He might have made them back at the end. But that was the intermediate sprint. The two chase, the two breakaway groups merged, so you had all these large riders. Uh, about 90 seconds ahead of Bora Hamsgrohe, who took it upon themselves to set pace, particularly with uh, Lucas Postelberger, for so much of today's stage. Until we got to... We're going to skip forward now to 178 Ks into the stage. The You might need to correct my pronunciation here, Benji. The Côte de la Croix du Pays. It's... Six kilometers long, 5.1%. And the GC teams did present at the front with Tony Martin for Jumbo Visma, and I think Ineos were there as well. Bora were pacing reasonably hard, but then, you know, it was hard enough for Ewan and, and Bennett to get dropped. But it became very, very evident when the first attacks came that the GC riders were not interested in controlling this today's stage and they were happy to let the bonus the bonus seconds on the next category two climb go to whoever was in the break but who was in that break Benji I've there were so many attacks it, it, I think you you kept better track of it than me it was it was so good to see on that category three just dozens of riders going up the road yeah firstly we had the Sunweb riders Benoit, Sonokro Anderson and I think Bashir was attacking at that point as well Soler as well so those were the real first attacks on that climb they basically caught up with the breakaway riders who then just dropped to the peloton and dropped off the back of the peloton pretty quickly. Nonetheless, plenty of people joined them. We had Attack de Pierre Roland, which is often great for me to see because I'm quite hyped about Roland this Tour de France for some reason. No cool why, but yeah, I enjoyed the meme, I guess. In that first group, we had a group of six then. That's Sharkman, Benoit, Sudenkra Anderson. We had a bridge up by Mark Hirschi, the unfortunate victim of the Pogacar Roglic sprint a few days back after well in Laurent in that ninth stage. Quentin Pacher was still there, teammate of Roland who is not in this first group yet. Solaire in this first group and then we had a second group on about I think 20 seconds with Leonard Kemna, Roach, Roland, Jungels, Dave and Steven Reichenbach, the Marquis Lutsenko and Bilbao and a few others to be honest. At that point I think I felt that Jungles and Davenines were prepping something for, for example, an Alaphilippe to bridge up. Did you have like similar tactics in mind, or do you think that Davenines was trying for a stage here today? Well, Jungles was pacing so hard on that second group, chasing what was a really strong group with three Sunweb riders, and Teichpanot was riding full for Kranz and, and Hershey. We didn't actually see 
on the really on TV when Hershey bridged and it seemed like he bridged in 30 seconds. He obviously was had fantastic legs again and he somehow just yeah danced across to that uh, group one on the road, which yeah had Sharkman, Bernard, SKA, Pache and Solaire. Solaire, I think, attacked them on the was it I think they went over the top of the climb every all these groups were scattered across the road and then there was a short descent not that long to be honest and then they had the category two climb uh the soup de may the may suco may actually I'm trying to read this horizontally because they write the <laughs> the climb names uh vertically which is difficult uh, on the tour profiles but yeah Soler attacks for absolutely no reason it made no sense and particularly given that there was a willing and able Sunweb rider in Teixe to pace him on that descent and then probably pace pace all of them in the break on the lower slopes of that uh, Category 2 climb. He attacked them and Mark Hershey was having absolutely none of it. <laughs> he immediately attacked that of the Sunweb group and went across to Solaire and... I think, yeah, he didn't even sit on him. He went straight past him as if he was riding a different race. And immediately we were like, it's Mark Hirschi time. And obviously the second group with the Sunweb riders, Benoit and SKA, pretty much sat up, I think. And, that yeah, they allowed themselves to be subsumed into that group. Where did you think Hirschi's advantage was, Benji, relative to that group? Was it on the climb? Was it on the descents? There was also like a rolly plateau section after the Category 2 climb. What did you think that group behind him needed to do to bring him back? Uh, like, what was their, the best way for them to do that? It kind of depended on an action that was happening behind because at that very moment, we had an attack in the peloton. Julian Alaphilippe decided to bridge up to the chasing group and he did that really quickly. The peloton was like 20, 25 seconds behind that chasing group and it bridged up in a matter of like 15 to 20 seconds. So crazy attack by Alaphilippe, but it kind of stopped there because... David Enns was pacing there. I think Jungels was just off the back at that point in that second group. So at that point, everything was down to David Enns there. He kept on pacing, kept on pacing. But obviously, David Enns alone won't do it. And you had Roach, who was still in that second group, who was not in the first group with the other Sunweb riders. Well, at that point, Hirschi was off already. But he they won't pace because you've got Hirschi at the front. Those teammates won't pace. And additionally, there was another person in the chasing group that I found very weird that he wasn't facing, but it's kind of understandable if you think about his nationality. And it was Reichenbach because everybody in the chasing group at a certain point was somewhat pacing except for the Sunweb riders. And you had Pacher and Roland also working together to try and get Hirschi somewhat back, but they were on like 40 seconds at that point. And every time Reichenbach came to the front, he stops pacing. And he basically blocks the whole group like he was riding for Sunweb, which is not the case. But maybe it's because he's Swiss. I don't know. I don't want to make false assumptions here. But it was really notable that he blocked the chase so harshly. And yeah, that is... Oh, I don't know. It, it is Reichenbach. You, you, Reichenbach does that to any sort of chase and has done in the past. So I'm not, maybe it's, that's just him. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> he's in the, but he is wearing the full Swiss the bright red Swiss national champs kit, which I do love. But yeah, Reichenbach, probably not the man you want on the front in rolly terrain in a, in a chase. Obviously, Kamner was kind of hamstrung. He was in that group too. Obviously, 
uh, one of the favourites of the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. He, he was hamstrung because Schachmann was up the road in no man's land, but Schachmann and Soler, they were the lone two riders. We'll, we'll try and give you some time gaps to make, make some sort of context on this. On the base of that Category 2 climb, it was maybe 30 seconds to Soler and Schachmann, who were just starting to work together a little bit. Then, yeah, there was that second group with all those riders in it, including the Sunweb riders and Kamna. And Kamna was sort of on the front for a little bit, then realised, oh, Schachmann's up the road. Maybe I probably can't really attack or do anything. And that would have slowed it down as well, when in reality, Schachmann probably... He's doing well for a guy whose shoulder probably <laughs> keeps him up at night every day, um, but he's probably not on like that top top form. I would have loved to have seen Davide Formolo actually have a crack at this stage as well, but unfortunately he abandoned I think yesterday, and maybe he wouldn't have even had the license to go on the break. But yeah, it was just that mix, Benji of yeah Reichenbach and Lutsenko doesn't really pull too well. Roland would rather attack you. Kamner was thinking about Sharkman. Roche and the Sunweb guys were obviously blocking. But to your point about Alaphilippe and Jungels and Dries Stevenens, yeah, I, I don't know. They I feel like Jungels and Dries Stevenens, like Jungels burnt his matches, it seemed, on the front of that chase group two before Alaphilippe even got there. Dries Stevenens burnt his matches getting Alaphilippe there. And Alaphilippe just doesn't really seem to be very good in a large breakaway like that because... No one probably wants to pull with him too much because he's Julian Alaphilippe. But he doesn't really do himself any favours either. He arrives so surgy. You saw him in the crosswinds and Kwiatkowski was looking at him like, what are you doing? Get Just stop. Get out of my way. Because he like will, will ride and surge through the front so hard, swing off with like a, a big motion. It's like the least efficient thing you'll ever see. And then look behind himself constantly, frantically, flicking people through at the elbow. And then people will have been like half dropped off his wheel because he like mini attacked whilst he was supposed to be pulling. I mean, Hazel Serrata did a similar thing too. And then Alaphilippe will get inevitably get frustrated with the lack of chase um, because Sunweb weren't really helping and because everyone was not wanting to work with Alaphilippe and because he's not good to work with. And then Alaphilippe will attack them, but it won't be like a full attack. And then people will still have good legs and bring him back. And then I think, you know, Pache did that a couple of times. And then rinse and repeat that. That seemed to happen, that scenario, over and over and over again for like 20 kilometers. And, yeah, that's my view on why that chase group was was so inefficient. I think he just wasn't strong enough today because he obviously should have – I think he should have attacked earlier because the moment that he or she attacks, you basically have so many attacks at that point. And all those attacks happened on the Croix du Pré. And Alaphilippe probably had in mind that he wanted to attack on the Suco So I think that's the failure in his tactics already. That he didn't anticipate that the gap to the front would be so big on the moment that he attacked on the Suco So it might have been that they pre-planned this because I'm pretty sure they did looking at it. But he or she was just too strong to their calculations of their tactics, I think. Let's focus on the big winner of the day. Mark Hirschi, I'll give you the platform now, Benji, to just go over your man crush now for Mark <laughs> Hirschi, the Swiss madman. Before the uh, Tour de France started in our preview, I thought he had an opportunity to potentially get stages, but I was looking more at him for a potential KOM victory. 
because he was climbing really well at the Dauphine. He has the punch to finish off these sprints. And looking back at it, I should have been able to anticipate that he can do stuff like this. I just didn't know he can solo that well because I didn't know his downhilling skills were that great. And additionally, I didn't know that he was such a good, well, I wouldn't say time trialist because I don't know what his time trialing is, but he's good at soloing ahead of groups. And yeah, he certainly showed it once again today because they definitely couldn't come any close to him. Maybe it's because the chase group didn't work together well, but it's also because he or she was in a very strong, very strong, yeah, place today. Additionally, we had an attack in the back for uh, from my other man crush, Pierre Roland. <laughs> so he basically no, attacked no. the right. I didn't. I didn't throw to you. I did not. That was not in our script. I didn't throw to you for <laughs> Pierre Roland. Uh, it was Mark Hirschi only. But yeah, I think. Rehershi, I think there's a genuine fear of him in the peloton right now. And I know that sounds ludicrous for a man who's 23 years old and just won his first probably major race in the World Tour, but we saw what he did in Stage 2. You, you, don't, need, you don't need a five-year-long list of Palmares to know this is a rider to be feared when he's coming second like that to Alaphilippe in Stage 2. And then the 90k break, everyone would have been the 90k solo break. Everyone in the peloton would have been like, "Okay, this guy is probably the best breakaway rider in this year's Tour de France, and is not a man to trifle with." And yeah, once he got clear of Soler on that descent off the cap two, he definitely it was still a pedaling descent. It wasn't too technical, but he rode it so efficiently as well um, that he didn't really lose any time on it. Then there was a valley, and then Rolly climbs. He was in. TT position the entire time. Just yeah, he may not be like an actual good time trialist, like a, a time trial specialist, but he seems to be very efficient on the road bike in rolly terrain like this. And he just held that gap constant at 47 seconds, 50 seconds to that chase group two. And yes, it was only 35 seconds or so to Shackman and Soler, but they, there was no way they were going to be able to gain time on him uh, on the climbs. He was he was probably putting a little bit of time into them on the climbs and maybe giving a little bit back on the flats, which there wasn't much of. So Mark Hirschi, solo win going from about 30Ks, 25Ks out. Once again, a lovely move from Sunweb and fantastic teamwork from Sunweb. Um, at the end... It, in the last 15Ks, it didn't look like anyone was going to come close to bringing back Mark Hershey, and he's cantered away for his first Tour de France victory, making it look actually pretty easy in the end, and he didn't even look puffed over the line. I want to say congrats to Team Sunweb. I was obviously, I won't shy away from it. I was very critical of them and their, like, their non-selection of Michael Matthews before this year's Tour de France. I still don't think that was necessarily wrong of me to criticise them for not picking Michael Matthews. That might have made their team even stronger. That being said, what they came first today, they picked up a stage. They also got third, I think, with Nico Roche. Um, And then another top 10 on this stage. They've got second in stage two with Hershey. He then came, what, third in stage nine. So Case Bowl, I think, a couple of stage podiums. So they've been knocking at the door in like 66% of these stages, two-thirds of these the stages that have gone on so far. And they've been really animating the race. And, yeah, I guess I want to dial back and retract a fair bit of that criticism because I criticise them and I look at how much they're animating the race with not big-name riders. And then there's Movistar, 
I don't know what the budgets are between Movistar and Sunweb, whether there's much difference, but it's night and day compared to the impact those teams are having on the race. What do you think it is about Sunweb that's made them, like, like how are they up there, Benji, with, with Quickstep and Bora? Well, we have to look at their team for that, in my honest opinion, that is starting here at this Tour de France. And we've got a team that has a lot of potential barriers. We've got the likes of Tish Benoit, we've got the likes of Hirschi, of course, Cronderson, we have obviously Nicholas Roach. Arndt as well has also won, won a breakaway stage in the past, if I recall correctly. So five riders that have done stuff in the breakaways in the past and are pretty strong riders in their own right. And today they work together for one goal to get Hirschi that stage win and everybody gave everything for him. I even had Cronderson as a dark horse today. I had two bets today, Hirschi and Cronderson, and I'm glad that one of them happened and the other one was finishing third. So great result by the teammate as well, who, yeah, they did a wonderful job at making sure he or she had that gap and chasing, well, fucking up the chasing group. Do we swear on this podcast? Yeah, we do. On the GC, no real movement today, obviously. Top 10 on the stage was Hirschi, Pierre Roland, second. It was actually Son Krar Anderson that came third, not Nico Roche. Quintan Pacher for BNB, actually quite a strong ride from him, fourth. Jesus Harada, fifth. I didn't like the way he worked in that breakaway. Schachman, sixth. Uh, Hugo Uhl, seventh for Astana. Sebastian Reichenbach, eighth. Kenny Ellison didn't like the way he worked either. Ninth, Chuck Segafredo. And Roche, tenth for Sunweb. So three Sunweb in top ten. Julian Alaphilippe, eleventh. He had a puncture in the last, I don't know, five Ks, and he probably would have come actually third on the stage. But that's enough from the Tour de France stage 12, a lovely little stage. Actually, plenty of excitement in the last 50 kilometers, but onto the stage tomorrow, which does promise some more GC action. We start in Chateau Guillon and we've got pretty much hills all around. We have the Col de César as the first climb, 10.4 kilometers at 6%, a first cat climb. After that, a bit of a plateau section going towards the Col de Guéry, which is 7.9 kilometers at 4.8%. This one's a third cat. I feel like this could easily be a second cat, or is it because of the percentage being that low? I generally don't know how they uh, categorize climbs, actually. Yeah, and after that, we've got the Monte de Lastel, which is also pretty similar, 7 kilometers, 5.5%. We go downwards, and halfway the race, in a bit of a downhill, after a bit of a downhill section after that Monte de Lastel, we've got the intermediate sprint of the day in La Nobre. Now, obviously, I'm guessing that Sagan is going to go in the breakaway here. What is your opinion on that? I don't I don't even know. It depends who gets in the break, right? If it's sort of ruler riders... If it's with GVA and they ride it easy and the GC teams really don't care and they let them take 10, 12 minutes, sure, you can get in the break. But I don't even like Sagan's climbing too much at the moment. The only saving grace for him before that intermediate sprint is the climbs are not particularly steep. 6%, 5%, 5 5.5% average gradients for the three of them. It is a lot of climbing. Certainly Sam Bennett and Ewan will be struggling there. He has to get the break. He has to try and get the break, I guess. So it's a moot point what I think will actually really happen. Um, he has to try because every point on the road now matters for him and this is an opportunity for him to take 20 uh, and Bennett to take zero and make up. That's still only a third of his deficit or less. So, yeah, what do you what do you think of Sagan's climbing right now? Do you, do you think he's capable of getting in a break on a stage where the first 90K looks like this? I hope he's able to. And it's harsh to say hope in the sense that, well, today he was not up to standard there because he he dropped early on on the Sukhomeh. Maybe he saw that it wasn't going to happen and then realized, well, 
it's useless to keep trying, maybe save some energy for today, but if his team was working all day, then I expect him to do more than just drop at the bottom of the Sukome. Unless they were working for Shockman, which I still doubt of it. Nonetheless, and regarding to the climbs of tomorrow before the intermediate sprint, yeah, it's going to be tough, but he also did so on, was it stage two? Yeah, I think so, that he was on the Turini, and on the Turini, he basically dropped from the break, and they already did a large climb. Was it, I don't know which one it was, but I'll just pretend that I just said the name. Okay, it was a pretty rough climb, and he got over that with the breakaway. So on paper, I would be guessing that he's going to try. He might drop a bit back on the climbs, but he's got the downhill skills to fly back on paper, so I believe he's going to be able to do that, but will DQS allow him to get away? I um, I don't think it's going to be too easy, because today, Bennett was straight up in his wheel when he tried to go in the breakaway. Nonetheless, after the intermediate sprint, we've got two more KOM points of Fadcat before we get to the uh, final section. Those Fadcat climbs are not too intense, they're shorter. We've got 2.6 kilometers, but this one is steep, 8%. And then after that, we've got, with about a good 40k to go, he called the Anglar de Soler, Saler, whatever, something like that. 4.2 kilometers at 6.3%, a fat cat climb. So, yeah, at that point, I don't think that, obviously, a Sagan wouldn't be there, because after the intermediate sprint, he's going to drop back to the peloton, most likely. Then we've got the final climb. We start off with the Col de Neron. It's a second cat. It's basically just from, like, the bottom of the Côte d'Anglard de Salaire. From that point onwards, we just start ramping up slowly but surely to the finish line for the last 40 kilometers. And midway there, we've got, with about 12 kilometers to go, the top of the Côte de Neron, which is a steep one, actually. 8.3 percentage, and it's second cat climb with a bonus gain on top. So I'm not sure we're going to see attacks there, though. I don't expect it. I'm not sure what you are expecting, but I think that the breakaway is going to get this stage. No, I expect GC attacks there. I've been told that low-key Neron is, is hard, that there's some steep sections in there, like really steep sections in there. And with the bonus gate there, I know there's a little bit of a plateau and then a, a short descent and then you've got into the next climb and the, these staircase climbs don't really seem to be, like we saw it on Monte Well, it didn't really wasn't conducive to much GC action. That being said, this screams Pogaccio to me again. I, I just I'm expecting Pogaccio to attack here. He's got the seconds on offer. He's gonna know. Sure, he might not gap Roglic, he might not gap Bernal, but he can at least gain that time back on all the other people ahead of him who are still ahead of him. By the way, you know you you can't count those seconds as made up until they're actually made up. I know that's a cliche, but Guillaume Martin is still ahead of him on GC. So if he's got the legs and he certainly backs his ability to recover day in day out. Bonus sec. Oh, maybe the bonus seconds won't be on offer, but maybe he won't care. It it'll depend on how the stage plays out with the breakaway. But even without the bonus gate, I think this climb is hard enough to merit him attacking and seeing who comes with him. I think that the peloton is going to allow the break to get a number of minutes, and the break will win the stage. But I do feel like people attack in the background, including a Pogacar on the cold in their own. That's kind of what I'm thinking. And towards the end, we shall not forget that after the Colneron, we've got the finish on Puy-Marie. That's 5.4 kilometers at 7.7%. So between the Neron and the Puy-Marie, there's not really a downhill section, just like five kilometers of flatness. But a very important note on the finish line is, well, it's touristic history, Lantern. Did you not remember that the Puy-Marie was a volcanic area, 65 
billion years ago. <laughs> so I think Egg and Bonal could also be an option <laughs> to attack on uh, the yeah the Neuron as well. If it's quite steep, if he sees. Yeah, if he sees any weakness in Roglic, he did attack on the steep section on stage nine as well. So maybe Bernard goes there as well. Um, but yeah, that's stage 13 of uh, tomorrow. And Benji's pretty much triggered me. So we're going to move on to Tirreno before <laughs> I have a breakdown. The fourth stage of Tirreno started in Terni and finished in Caschia. I think that's how you pronounce it. My Italian isn't exactly fantastic. But we've got a pretty flat run-in. Towards the end, we've got... Two proper climbs to note for. We've got 60 kilometers to go to Forca di Gualdo, which is 10.1 kilometers at 7.5%. And then a bit of rubble on top in the sense that they've got a few hills on top and then go straight downhill towards the last climb of the day with 20k to go. The Ospedaletto, 5.1 kilometers at 7.1%. And after that, it's a descent. 1.8 kilometers in front of the line, it kicks up again. And there's a bit of a false flat towards the finish line. So no major summit finish yet. That's for tomorrow, I think. Yes, indeed. Stage five. So on this stage, we basically started off with an early breakaway, including some interesting riders in the form of Michael Matthews. Did you expect Matthews in a breakaway? Because I sure as hell didn't. I don't think I can. I can barely remember Michael Matthews ever getting in a breakaway. Um, ever. He's, he's the sort of guy that does the opposite of that. He lets breaks go throughout, especially the last two to four years. Breaks go, and then he's the man who mops up the bunch sprint behind them. It happened in Milano San Remo. It's happened a lot. Um, yeah, I was surprised to see that. He's obviously, I mean, when we spoke, he, he said he lost a lot of weight compared to last year, like, you know, like five kilos in the order of that. And he was climbing a lot better. So, yeah, maybe getting into a break. Maybe he's just getting some training in. Um, and he knew he probably wanted to see if he could actually climb with with those guys or if he had enough of an advantage over the end of the uh, Forca di Gualdo climb, whether he could then hang on for the last climb up the Ospedaletto if he did have a margin. But yeah, I was a little bit surprised to see that, but it, it kind of makes sense if this is not a not an a priori race for Matthews and he's just sort of still tuning up for the Giro. Yeah, in that breakaway we had Marco Canola again, same guy that was on the stage one and two breakaway. So He's basically going for the world record of Turin, whether they have to go breakaway kilometers, it seems. Nonetheless, when they started the Forca di Gualdo, they had some attacks in the break already. Caratero and Matthews were basically bridging up to some attackers, and they were the first two to hit the top. In the KOM sprint, it was Caratero that took the points ahead of Matthews. So, yeah, Matthews, KOM jersey, mm, might happen. <laughs> Nonetheless, after that, uh, Matthews just rode away, and he basically dropped... I think Caratero in the downhill section, I'm not overly sure of that, but I did not know before this stage that Matthew's bike handling was so great. Like, he's also a really good descender. His skills in the descend are, like, not Hirschi-like yet, in my honest opinion, because Hirschi was way more daring. I feel like Matthew rides way more calculated and just a nice technique and a nice posture on the bike. So I just wanted to note that for, for some reason. Yeah, it's quite smooth. It's quite smooth on the descent, but definitely, yeah, he definitely was looking through the corners much more than, say, Mark Hirsch, he was. Um, but it was a pedaling descent. And I've just, yeah, it was a surprise to me too because I, I barely remember ever seeing Michael Matthews on his own in, in a descent. But, yeah, it all kicked off at the bottom of the last climb of the day. The break was caught at the bottom of the Ospedalato. Chris Froome was dropped at that point. Matthew Vanderpol was dropped there as well. 
kind of surprising, like given how he did at Lombardia with similar sort of climbs, kind of surprising he got dropped there. Guerrero was pulling hard for Woods, uh, and then Ineos just ping, started to ping it on the front. I think it was Rowan Dennis, actually, he pulled a pretty hard turn. Then Teo Gagenhardt, they're obviously riding for Grant Thomas on GC. Should remind you that Michael Woods for EF, he is wearing the lead, he was wearing the leader's jersey of the race today, and then it was attacker to Simon Yates with um, Woods responding. Yates always he just always manages to get those attacks off Benji. No one's really looking at him, but he he's, he was quite a way back in the group. Grant Thomas, who looks fantastic by the way, bridging across to those guys. Fulsang. And Nibali dropped off the back of that group. Nibali was third wheel when Ineos were driving it up that, that climb. Remember, we're in like the last third of that climb uh, as I'm talking about it. Vlasov bridged to them so quickly. Um, like he's wearing the, the Young Riders jersey, the white jersey at Terreno, and he, he snapped off that group and went across to Yates and Co. pretty easily. And then... Yeah, was there a chase group, I think, Benji, of Maznada, the Italian rider for Quickstep, Knox as well for Quickstep, Kelderman, Ullman, Sunwear Riders, and two Mitchell and Scott riders, Hamilton and Haig, who would obviously be sitting on uh, that chase group. And, yeah, what did you think? Who did you think was the strongest out of all those riders? And, and what was your read on Thomas? What was your read on Fulsang, Nibali, Vlasov, anything that, you thought was meaningful going into the Giro in a month? Well, it does seem like Vlazov was really strong with that bridging up to the uh, group in front of them. And Thomas was obviously able to follow the attacks quite well. So he's certainly looking better than he was at the Dauphiné. But in general, towards this stage, I was focusing more on the fact that there was such a numeric advantage in some teams compared to, for example, Thomas who was riding alone. I think Vlazov didn't have any teammates either. So at that point, it became a bit of a play between those teams because, well, an Australian went off the front. Yeah, so Masnada and the Quickstep group managed to bridge back to the group of Vlasov, as you said, Woods and Yates, and immediately Lucas Hamilton attacked on a downhill, actually. I'm pretty sure it was on a downhill. He attacked, and he got followed by Masnada, who looked pretty good as well. A lot of people like Magnus Baxter and Matt Stevens are actually criticizing the Mitchell and Scott tactics quite a lot because they're like, why are they sending Hamilton in the break when they should be riding for Yates on GC? This is helping Mike Woods. And I guess, A, does Yates have a real chance of GC at the moment when they do have an individual time trial, I think, and there's Thomas looking pretty sharp, actually. And B, for the purposes of this stage, they were able to have Yates, you saw him on multiple occasions, waving through the chase. And the chase was really, really inefficient, the same way that the Tour de France Stage 12 chase was inefficient. Like, Yates was refusing to help. Haig was able to sit on. Thomas was pulling, sort of. Fulsang wasn't there to work with Vlasov. Masnada counted across to, to Hamilton, and that was why he was being criticised, Hamilton on the Mitchell and Scott tactics by the commentators because they're like, oh, well, why is Hamilton working with Masnada when he's a GC threat for Quickstep? And I was like, oh, I thought Knox was their Quickstep, was their, was Quickstep's GC guy. And secondly, is Yates really that concerned about Masnada? And thirdly, Hamilton did probably sit on him. Well, I'd say he sat on him most of the time. He, he gave a 
a bit of help. I don't think he completely buried himself, and we saw that as in, in the finale. With 1.8 to go, as Benji mentioned at the top of the stage profile, it's like a false flat uphill. And, and when Hamilton was working with Masnada, it was really pretty much on that descent, I think, Benji. I mean, we've got here in our notes, was it a tactical error? Do you, am I missing something? Am I underrating Masnada? Like, what, where, what is the tactical error? Like, play devil's advocate here. Why is it a mistake for Mitchelton to send Hamilton with Masnada? I think it's mainly a tactical error in the short term, in the sense that if Hamilton kept riding at that point, because I feel like he was still riding quite a bit after that 1.8 kilometer to go part, because he was the first guy to go under the 1K banner and such, that he was basically getting Masnada over Yates in GC. But in the long term, like you said, it shouldn't matter because on paper, Masnada is going to get dropped by Yates on the climb tomorrow at the end of the stage. So, well, on paper, because Masnada has been overperforming at Quick Step since he joined, to be honest. Uh, yeah, he was at CCC last month. That's crazy to think of, actually, right now. Either way, regarding Yates, I do believe that he has a GC opportunity, even with that time trial, because Yates should not be underestimated. It's a one-week race, it's not a Grand Tour, so he's got a bit more... Well, he's won a Grand Tour already, but still, he's got a few Grand Tours that he really fell through in the last portion. But when it comes to one-week races, he's he's very strong, and I believe he can win Tirena with a form like this. But yeah, then with 1K to go, it was Hamilton pretty much st- he stopped working entirely with Masnada, uh, which was smart. Masnada was trying to then gain that time on GC. That's why I think it was a pr- pretty good tactical move from Mitchell and Scott. It also allowed Yates to sit in in that group. And yeah, maybe he could have won the bunch sprint if they did bring back Masnada and Hamilton. And then Masnada was just like, oh, this sucks, and realized I'm actually going to have to pull this guy to the line. And with quite early, actually, he must have had pretty good legs and a read on Masnada. Hamilton launched with like 200 to go and it's uphill two and opened a proper gap. And immediately we saw this stage win was over. And yeah, Hamilton took his first World Tour stage win, the young Australian rider. I was pretty excited seeing that. In the chase group, Mike Wood sprinted to third, getting mopping up some bonus seconds as well. Um, so yeah, Mike Woods is looking hella strong after that femur fracture. He looks so good. The top 10 for the day was Hamilton first, Masnada second, same time. Woods third, 10 seconds behind. Vlasov fourth, Thomas fifth, Kelderman sixth, Haig seventh, Micah eighth. Micah looked pretty vulnerable today. I expect him to lose a lot of time tomorrow. Knox ninth, Simon Yates tenth. The GC standings are Woods nine seconds ahead of Micah. Masnada 18 seconds behind Woods. Hamilton Fourth, Kelderman, Thomas, Yates, Vlasov are sort of all on that 30-second mark, maybe you know, 16 seconds behind Masnada. Let's have a look at tomorrow's stage profile, Benji, quickly for Treno. It's to Sassoteto. People think maybe that Fulsang could be going for the stage win there tomorrow. I don't think it will be, but yeah, how much? Who do you think is winning that stage to tomorrow? Because I've got, got a hard, i got a firm pick for this stage. I think Vlasov wins. And okay, you t- go take my pick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna pick him because uh, you've been a well, you haven't been really biased towards him, but you've been a p- pretty good stand of his performances and you've been pretty good at predicting when they will come. So, congratulations there. Nonetheless, when it comes to the stage that Sasuoteto climb, it's 11.9 kilometers, it's pretty long, 7.1 percent. So, I'm feeling already there that Fulsang will not be able to 
hold on until the finish. Fusang's not a terrible climber, not at all, but today he was gone so instantly, so he's clearly not the leader for GC here anymore. And additionally, I think that tomorrow Vlazov might just claim his Giro role as leader like this, because he has surely shown already that he's able to climb like one of the best at the moment, and I think he's going to do that tomorrow. I said that Simon Yates was a possible, well, winner as well. Yeah, they're all candidates. Yates has more of a team around him, I think, right here, because we've seen, obviously, Hamilton and Haig doing really well. I would not underestimate Haig to help out Yates quite well on this climb. Yeah, Yates has got a good team here, not going to lie. I think Jakob Fulsang being like 6-1 to one, or he was, I saw 5-1 to one for the Giro. I think that's insane odds. It's like insane odds. He should be 15s, 18s. I don't even think he's going to be the leader at Astana. You've now got, he, he's not going to be the best climber and he's not the best time trialist of them. So I think Yates will outclimb him. Thomas will out-TT him. I'm not even sure he's going to out-climb Thomas, to be honest. So, yeah, or even Mike Woods. Is Mike Woods going to the Giro? I'm not even sure if he is. Um, it doesn't say what his program is because Education First never say what their program is, except for letting you know their riders are doing a 700-kilometer race that isn't really a race in the middle of the desert. But yeah, I think Vlasov is going to be the GC leader for Astana at the Giro. Um, it makes the most sense. I think Ineos are looking, they're looking pretty good for the Giro. <laughs> Gagenhart, Puccio, Ghana, Dunbar. Although Dunbar just had that injury, unfortunately, yesterday we should mention. Dennis looked pretty good too. I can't remember if there's a team time trial or not. It seems like the UCI and race organisers hate team time trials now. But that's what we've got today. For Stage 12 of the Tour de France and Terreno Adriatico Stage 4, some really exciting races. Both races were kind of similar in the tactics that were happening with the two chase groups. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. And if you do like the podcast, give us a rating or a review. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 